ERU comes from our listeners and from Walls Dairyport. Over 65 years of ice cream artistry. Main Street, Bucksport. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk is up next. Good morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and agriculture here in the state of Maine brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is C.J. Walk, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. So today, the topic for our show is homesteading here in Maine. Homesteading is typically viewed as a model of self-sufficiency, where homesteaders look to produce create or harness most or all of the items or processes that are part of their daily lives. Typically, homesteaders are thought of people who live off the land and grow most of their own food, but it goes a lot further than food where homesteaders are also producing their own heat, energy, shelter, and even community. Homesteading can also be a political act. It's not just a lifestyle, it's a statement. It's a way of focusing on what is truly important and necessary in our lives. So today, as we talk about homesteading here in Maine, I have two guests with me in the studio, and I'd like to thank them both for being here today. Um, We have Rose Whitehead, who is from Waldo, Maine. Thanks for being here, Rose. And we also have Cy Schatz, who is from the Belfast area here in Maine, and thanks for being here today. Cy. My pleasure. So I will let listeners know that when we get about halfway through the show, around 1030, we will open up the phone lines for any comments and questions. Uh, but as we get going here, I'd like to just come come back a bit to our guests and give each of them a few minutes to kind of introduce themselves to listeners. So I think I would look over to Cy to go first if you want to just give us a little bit about, about where you are and what you're up to. Sure. Um, well, I didn't grow up homesteading. Um, it was you know, a decision I made when I was in college. And um, I started out farming in western Massachusetts. And from there, I ended up moving to a farm to learn from some folks in New Brunswick, Canada, and then ended up spending time in Aroostook County as well. Can you speak up just a little bit? Sure, yeah. A so little closer. I'm, I'm new to the mid-coast area of Maine. Yeah. Um, you know, Aroostook is... I know I know Rustic Maine a lot better than I know Waldo County, um, and you know my my passions are particularly around uh, fruit trees, livestock, um, making exquisite leafy loose hay, um, scythes, um, those sorts of things. Okay. All right. Thanks again for being here today, Sai. We'll talk more about that. Um, and how about Rose over here? Okay. Welcome uh, to the show. Thank you. Um, I've been gardening and farming since I was probably before I can remember. There's photos of me at three feeding bottle lambs and mm-hmm. my mother giving me a piece of cardboard when I was too small to s- separate the seeds 
and give them a space when we were planting our large gardens for our family. I went to college to major in ecology before it was a major mm -hmm. and decided that continuing on with some differences to what my I grew up with was what I really wanted to embrace. Mm -hmm. uh, partly because I loved crafts and decided that there's no way I could make a living only at that, so I just have to make a living at a smaller level. And homesteading was a way to re reduce the need of income and mm -hmm. keep me grounded in the land. Okay. I really enjoy gardening and yeah. drying and preserving my food. Okay. Well... Among other things, I'm sure, which <laughs> we'll, we'll start to talk a little bit more about um, as well. So I guess um, I would continue, kind of rose to continue to ask uh, how long you've been in your homestead where you are now. Let's see. My daughter's 31, and I bought the property when she was four. Uh, so that's 27. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So you've been in, in the same place for that amount of time. Yes. Okay. Um, and then are, are there, um, I guess, how how you get started along the way? It seems like you had some experience and knowledge and skills just from a very early age. Um, but getting established on a homestead, what's that? What's that? how was that process for you in terms of finding the land in the right place to settle down. Is that quite a search? Um, it was... I, I did end up floundering for a bit. I ended up house-sitting at a couple places with goats mm -hmm. and um, because my daughter was allergic to, to cow's milk. We, I got goats before I got land. Okay. Um, I actually bought my property from Uncle Henry's. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, was very lucky to have the people that owned the property co-sign the loan because the bank wouldn't touch me because I didn't have enough income, they thought. Oh, yes, yes, okay. Could you move a little closer to the microphone? Okay, is that okay. better? Yes. Thank yes. you. Um, just so we can make sure everyone can hear us clear, clearly and evenly. Um, so you've been in the same place in Waldo for, for quite a time. Yes. Okay. And then I'm going to jump over to Cy. And um, you had mentioned being up in Arusta County uh, mm -hmm. and around and things, but relatively recent to the kind of Belfast Mid-Coast area. Mm -hmm. um, and what brought you, I guess, what brought you to the Belfast region? Um. Well, I some friends of mine, when I I was touring uh, eco villages and egalitarian communities a few years back, um, I met some folks in Missouri who I really connected with, and um, this past like you know late summer fall, I realized that you know the situation I was in up north wasn't really working out for me for a variety of reasons and. Um, that I was probably going to move, and I wasn't sure where I wanted to end up, but I, I knew these friends of mine had just moved to Belfast and came to visit them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it 
it felt like um, well a, a good location for a variety of reasons. I like the people I met and um, like being near the coast again. And it's kind of halfway in between my family, who's down in Massachusetts, and yeah. you know my found family up north. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know I, I I feel like any decision about where to land at a certain point ends up being kind of arbitrary. Mm-hmm. You know you could fret over it forever where's the perfect place to be but eventually some place is just good enough (laughs) make it the perfect place it seems yeah um and did you have did you grow up with kind of a background of um working with the land gardening and things like that no no not at all actually i mean i grew up with like pets you know (laughs) and going to this place called drumlin farm a lot when i was here so i actually know know what town it is but when I was living outside of Boston mm-hmm. my parents would take me there and um, I got into homesteading and farming as a result of you know a number of things kind of including a growing awareness of ecological crisis we're facing and you know the whole social political situation of not just our country but this whole culture and um and also a, a need to like, re, you know, heal myself and really reconnect to food and the source of my sustenance. Mm-hmm. So all all those things intersecting led me to start seeking jobs on farms and then mm-hmm. living on other people's homesteads for a while. And now I'm looking to get settled on my own. Yeah. So learning those skills along the way and mm-hmm. and getting ready to to found your own place. Um. Okay, great. So in terms of um, Rose, I think I would come back around to you um, and just thinking with a little, you know, more more time on the homestead, so to speak, was it a, uh, the decision to do so, I guess, was that um, something that was maybe just a personal decision that you always knew or along the way you figured like this was just the right the right situation for me? Um, it was along the way. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, I'm going to do this. It was more, I know that I can do this from my background and mm-hmm. then my ecological awareness and my political decision to not earn enough money to pay taxes that I didn't want to go to things that I didn't want them to go to. Yes. <laughs> um, and making a choice to to live with, before they even had, you know, the small carbon footprint, I was making choices to make a small one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah, just trying to get a little bit of, of, of background for listeners. Um, about where we're, the direction we're going to be heading in today, I would say, and some some experience of our guests. Um, what I'm curious about, maybe in terms of some details kinds of things, um, maybe describing the area where you live a little bit, um, maybe not in great detail, but in terms of um, things like starting with shelter were you building your own home your own Mm -hmm. shelter or was it already in existence and we think of things of like um 
heat sources and electric electricity sources um, as well as water and things so were those all things that you had to establish when you purchased a homestead or were those kind of in place and then you change things around to how you want them to be I bought a piece of land that had ledge outcropping and had been probably close to clear cut about eight years before I bought it. Okay. That was it. <laughs> so starting from scratch for yes. sure. Okay. Okay. Um, and Sai, how about you in terms of figuring out the settling place? Um, uh-huh. I know you've been, you mentioned moving around a little bit, but in terms of what that perfect space would be for you? Is it something that you would look to construct from scratch or looking for a little bit of kind of like a starting launching pad? Well, um, you know, that depends. I guess there's there's two places I'm looking at right now, and one would be starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have friends right nearby, you know, who are well-established there. So, yeah. um, and the other place I'm looking at um, there's already a barn you know that needs a lot of work mm-hmm. um, and you know there's already a drilled well and you know power running down there mm-hmm. um, so yeah those the infrastructure that's already in place definitely weighs on the decision making but it's not like one of the most important factors for me mm-hmm. um, you know I've had when I started homesteading in Western Mass on some land my stepmother owns. Um, there wasn't, you know, water or power or anything there when I moved there. But then, you know, other situations where I've been on other people's places, you know, I've been able to move into buildings that they built and they already have their systems in place. Mm-hmm. So I've had kind of both ends of that spectrum. Okay. All right. <clears throat> and then how about... Um, in terms of space, location, kind of the the day to day types of things. Um, in terms of Rose, when we were talking earlier, uh, mentioning some things about hauling firewood and hauling water. Um, are you? What's your water source on your homestead? I guess I'll just make one specific question. Um, I. T- drilled a well and put a bison pump on it and discovered that it was way too rusty to use that way. Mm-hmm. And so I have this catch system off of the roof that runs through into into barrels and settles, and then I take that water and I run it through a charcoal filter and I boil it to drink it. And mm-hmm. so it's a, a daily task that needs to be done to have water that's drinkable mm-hmm. and used for cooking. Okay. Okay. And then water sources for gardens and things? Or you... I, for the gardens, I use the, the rusty water and they can, okay. they can use the iron on the soil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in terms of heat for your homestead in the wintertime, you had mentioned something about firewood earlier. Yeah, I have, I have, I just have a wood stove. I also have a small um, camp propane stove, so mm-hmm. that I don't have to use the wood stove for cooking in the summer. Yeah. And on occasion, when things go really wrong, you can always 
turn on the oven of the propane stove and open it up. But that's a real last ditch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Heat source. Yep. And do you, in terms of the firewood piece, are you able to gather all that from your own own land, or? That's one of the things that I'm buying now. Okay. Um, I had to give up chainsawing because my shoulders gave out and the, just the vibration on my rotator cuffs is no longer a possibility. Okay. So that's one of the things that I'm having to earn money for. Yeah. Now. Okay. All right. Inside, in terms of um, places where have you, you have been in terms of managing some of, I'm just trying to think of the daily maybe conveniences that we would mm -hmm. think of in terms of uh, say the water and heat places where there are different systems that you were were working with yeah um, in one farm where I lived for a number of years they had a spring-fed brook that ran through the middle of the farm and you know then pipes that ran into you know, build little dams in the brook and then have a pipe running up under the dam there and um, we'd have a big barrel that would be constantly filling and overflowing back into the brook and that's where, you know, we took drinking water for ourselves and for the animals. Um, that was really the best situation. I mean, that was the best water and um, the least. Well, it, w it was definitely effort to keep the dam from totally f silting up and filling up with leaves each year. It needed to be mucked out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you needed to keep the water running high enough all winter so that it wouldn't freeze. But that was... That was a fantastic situation, really. And then, um, you know, other places I've lived it had w hand pumps on a mm -hmm. well. Um, where I'm staying right now, well, I'm, I'm living just a few houses down the road from where I'm housing my goats. And um, where I'm living there, they don't actually have a well pump. They have rainwater catchment, and then they filter it. Mm -hmm. So that's... But I actually... Um, I guess I... I don't really drink water. I, I just drink a lot of milk. Okay. So uh, the water thing is kind of less of an issue for me, though. I kind of I got spoiled on spring water in New yeah. Brunswick, so I've uh, yeah. It's like when I don't have really great water that I'm excited about, I just drink milk instead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's plenty of water in the milk. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the goats filter the water for, for you yeah. and clean it that sounds like a good way to go yeah um okay and then um how about we kind of move into some questions just about food um maybe we can start with the plant-based side of things and move to animal sides of things but mm -hmm. i'm curious in terms of um maybe rosa will look to you in terms of food production gardens and things okay. um what are you really focusing on? Um, right now, I'm focusing heavily on brassicas and leafy greens, uh, berries, um, apples. Um, I tend to, this as soon as the chives come up, I'm eating out, out, I I have a colander by the door, and I just go out the door when it's time to eat and find what what is needs to be eaten. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of drying of greens and and culinary herbs and tea leaves. I root cellar. Yep. 
Um, so that would be mostly the root crops. I used to do a lot of potatoes and, and tomatoes and peppers and dry peppers. Um, since I've gotten older, I have dropped out of the nightshades, so I no longer grow them because it, now I'm just because of my hip joints and mm -hmm. hips problems. Okay. So it's evolved and changed as I've aged. Changed more. over the years. Um, it seems like some of the foods that you mentioned, is, it, is there a lot of uh, perennial kind of food crops in terms of, I think some of the things you mentioned seem to be mostly perennial to me. Oh, uh, oh well, yeah, there's, um, yeah, and, and of course there's in the spring when I, they speak of the chives and then there's the Solomon seal and the hostas and uh, the dandelion greens and mm -hmm. many things that I don't plant and things that I do plant and sometimes I have to clean out the things that I don't plant so there's room for the things that I want to plant. Yeah. Okay. And is it also, it seems like there's a bit of kind of cultivation of some of the the, the wild, I guess, as well. Yeah, Definitely. thinning. Yeah. You, you, instead of weeding, you're thinning. You're thinning. <laughs> thinning back whatever's uh, coming back perennially for you mm -hmm. along the way. And then do you maintain some garden areas that you would be planting more annual crops or are you kind of interplanting among other things that are growing there on the homestead um there's an area that's supposed to be just for annuals right near the, the greenhouse uh -huh. um that's where i'm constantly having to harvest things out so that i can plant things in okay <laughs> I have a bad habit of, oh, but it's food. Let it grow. <laughs> <laughs> Giving it a chance. And then it takes over. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Sai, how about for you in terms of the food side of things? Are you looking at mixtures of perennial crops, wild crops, cultivated um, annuals? Yeah, well, I I mean, I've done a fair bit of gardening in the past, but it's, you know, annual gardening is really not my focus at this point. I mean, mm -hmm. the feeding the animals that I'm milking is like my number one priority because yeah. that's like the majority of my sustenance. Um, and then I, you know, often end up nibbling on whatever I'm getting for them, <laughs> you know. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm thinking first and foremost about what I, what I can cut. And like right now where I have my goats, it's it would be quite there's other livestock there and it's it's not an ideal situation it's just kind of temporary so i'm i'm hauling all their food to them i go out like the scythe and you know cutting partly dry stuff you know or dry it enough that i can store a little bit at a time mm -hmm. i don't i mean i'd love to be have a barn i could be putting hay up in for the winter right now mm -hmm. but i'm i'm not i'm not there yet and i i do a lot of pruning trees for the goats too Mm -hmm. um, you know, all all kinds of different things, evergreens and deciduous, you know, summer and winter. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the plants that I'm growing specifically for myself, I'm more, uh, I get more inspired around fruit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's plenty of good 
leafy green things that just volunteer themselves all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So, you know, I, I do really like to grow squash, but um, mostly perennials are what I'm focused on, you know, trees and shrubs. Mm-hmm. Um, peaches are something I've been particularly excited about because I, I got some seed stock from an old timer that has, I've been, you know, growing those out and saving seed and planting more of them and they've been fantastic mm-hmm. i mean who doesn't love peaches <laughs> you know um but apples are really you know very important to me too because you know peaches yeah you can process them and but they're they're not a storage crop really but apples are um yeah, apples are much more important in terms of year-round mm-hmm. sustenance. And, you know, like making cider is something I really mm-hmm. enjoy doing. And I see that as, you know, people get all into cider, you know, for the, you know, recreational uh, benefits. But I really see it as, well, there's there's that. I won't deny that. But yeah. it's also a really important way to preserve nutrition mm-hmm. because here you've got, you know, a living product um, that, you know, I mean, dried apples are great and applesauce is great, but I think there's definitely something to that that live fermentation. You're going to get nutrition out of cider that you're not going to necessarily get out of things that have been canned or dried. Mm-hmm. Other, di- other preservation methods. Yeah. Okay. So it seems like the live cider and, and the milk are good combinations. Yeah, yeah. I haven't tried mixing them, yet, <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you know. Okay. When I, do I don't that. think I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. Well, I'll just take a minute to let folks know that this is Common Ground Radio, and today we're talking about homesteading here in Maine. And my guests are Rose Whitehead from Waldo and Cy Shots from Belfast, um, and. In just a few minutes or so, we'll open up the phone lines for questions. But I wanted to, um, I guess I wanted to ask a little bit about animals because you both have mentioned something about goats. Uh, and it also seems when we've had talked with other homesteaders, somehow it seems like goats are an animal of choice. Is there, um, Rose, I guess I would ask with you because um, in terms of, more experience is there is there a reason behind that or a reason why you would choose to have a goat have goats the reason on the homestead the reason i chose to have goats first of all was my daughter was allergic to cow's milk okay the second was that the property i got was not that quality of pasture that a sheep or a, a cow would Mm-hmm. prosper on so goats are a more versatile animal as far as where you can graze them they're what they eat is a much broader range so that's also a positive mm-hmm. and then size when you have a cow you've got an awful lot of milk mm-hmm. for one homestead <laughs> whereas goats are more size appropriate to mm-hmm. Okay, and would you be, in addition to raising goats for milk, would they also, would you raise goats for meat as well, or? Well, uh, when you get boy triplets, 
from the girl running out of the fence down the road to breed with the mohair goat male down the way, you get the, meat. The, the neighbor's goat? <laughs> the, yes. And, and then I, I also, for a while, tried to have both dairy goats and goats for my fiber business. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting experience in trying to keep the two of them separate. <laughs> they have they're, their own minds. They're quite agile as well from, <laughs> from my experience. And Sai, for you with the goats, um, what what drew you to goats, I guess? Um, somebody giving me goats. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with what Rose was saying, and, and I, I also think that, you know, we we tend to have these like ideas of like oh goats like people say goats eat tin cans well no. starving goats eat tin cans maybe um, if there's something yummy still on the inside in the of the can. tin can <laughs> um, but I I think that there's a lot of variety within species and within breeds even and people say oh goats are this way and sheep are that way and I know that if you know I know sheep that People, if they just saw how they behaved, would think they're goats. And I know goats that people see how they behave, they say, oh, that's like a sheep. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm hesitant to make really broad generalizations. Um, and the same goes for cows. There are cows that will have an easier time living on brush than some goats who have just learned a different way of being. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think I like all the species of ruminants particularly. I mean, they're... You know, there's this saying from Spain that I've heard. They say cows are for butter, goats are for milk, and sheep are for cheese. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd like to have all of that, actually. <laughs> um, you know, maybe even a little horse milk for making kumis. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the – I've never tried it, but, you know, they, they make this uh, milk beer in, like, Eastern Asia because horse milk is really high in sugar, so instead of – fermenting into something like yogurt or cheese it becomes like an alcoholic beverage uh-huh. you know mix that with the cider right? yeah. <laughs> sounds like a new craft enterprise yeah, right. yeah I would have that market cornered in Waldo <laughs> County I if so. I ever got into that I um, think so. yeah so yeah ruminants are really important to me for their milk um, you know I I don't generally try to raise them for meat specifically because you know, as Rose was saying it's like you have animals for any other purpose you also have them for meat mm-hmm. um you know they're unless you think that you can support an ever-growing population yeah uh, you're gonna need to eat some or somebody's gonna need to eat some might be a wild animal yeah uh but you know i like to generally eat them myself when it comes to that point okay um i, I also you know waterfowl are one type of animal that I am actually interested in raising specifically for meat, you know, geese in particular, because um, they are herbivores, unlike, you know, ducks, chickens, turkeys, um, geese can subsist on just vegetation. They don't need insects or grain, which is just like kind of a substitute for Mm -hmm. insects they would be getting. Um, So, you know, the geese are kind of like little cows in a way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they're really delicious. Um, 
and honeybees are another you know class of livestock that I've only spent have been you know beginning to get to know and I, I really appreciate the time I've had with them and wanna I want to keep learning about all these animals and maybe bees might be where I have some of the most room to grow mm-hmm. um, always room to yeah. grow right? yeah okay um, well I think we're about halfway through the show so uh, this is Common Ground Radio, and we're talking about homesteading here in Maine with um, our guests Rose and Cy. And we look to open up the phone lines here in a second for anyone that may have a question for our guests or a, a comment. And that number is right into the studio is 469-0500, and we welcome any any comments or questions. Um Maybe just to wrap up on the goat piece, I'm just curious, is there, uh, you were given goats. Yeah. And I'm just curious, a, sp- a specific breed that you're working with or? Well, what I what I have now, um, the my kind of queen doe, she's mostly Nubian, but she's not purebred. And then all my other does are descended from her in some way. And um, I have... Know, a couple other closer to purebred Nubians, but they're you know not really interested in pure breeding actually. And then I've been crossing them with Nigerian dwarves to get like a mid-size goat because um, the Nubians, as much as I you know I, I really like them a lot of the full-size goats, they're the highest butterfat, um, but they're not tremendously hardy. They are you know more susceptible to intestinal parasites. The Nigerian dwarves bring in a lot more hardiness to parasites, um, and they're just kind of they're easier keepers in many ways. So those mid-sized goats have kind of some of the advantages of both. You know, mm-hmm. actually, the Nigerian dwarves add even higher butterfat content to the milk, um, and they and these crosses still produce almost as much as the full-size goats. Yeah, yeah, and it seems like a smaller animal might be easier to feed when you're. When things may be limited, right? If their intake is less, yeah, it's mostly um, their legs that are shorter. Actually, uh, <laughs> with the crosses, the, the belly is just as big. But it does seem to fill up easier. Yeah, I don't know. It, yeah, huh. they okay. can't jump over things that are quite as high. Yeah, it's nice too. That helps. Yeah, with fencing. Yeah. Um, Rose, in your experience with the goats, were you um, were you uh, we mentioned the the goat milk and things, but was there a certain breed that you were looking to work with, or you end up finding kind of that the crosses or the lines are really good a good animal to? I preferred crosses. I found them hardier. Um, mm-hmm. I was I started out with a Alpine Nubian cross and as my first doe, and I bred her with. Sonnens, I bred her with Overhostleys, I bred her with whoever had a buck that I thought would be. <laughs> and sometimes she bred herself with bucks that I didn't exactly choose for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so were you mostly keeping just one goat that you would have for milk? Or um, a, a small herd? I The largest herd I had was 23. Okay. And that was when I was trying to have both mohair goats for... Um, in fiber. Fiber. So I was ha- at that point, I was having mohair goats and um, angora rabbits and dairy goats and um, chickens. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. 
All right. Um, and then in part of the other piece I wanted to lead towards with the animals was to talk a little bit about the fiber piece because, Rose, you had mentioned doing a lot of work over time with, with fiber and different crafts. Right. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you've had experience with? Um, well, I studied um, textiles in Sweden when I was young, and so I brought that knowledge back with me. And mm -hmm. um, so I was doing f weaving on a floor loom and felting and selling and crafts fairs along the state, you know, Common Ground Fair being one of them. Mm -hmm. And um, I did that until I got chronic Lyme and had to drop out of that. Okay. I just put my large loom up for sale. Okay. And moved to making baskets. So now I'm, um, you know, using my apple prunings and multi-floor roses from a neighbor's farm and other things to weave baskets. I'm still weaving, but mm -hmm. on a smaller scale. Okay. And were you typically... Um, for the fiber piece, were you typically just using fiber from your own animals or being sourcing from neighbors or friends? Um, I would use my own animals, and then I um, would go and help skirt at other people's farms when they were shearing mm -hmm. for their animals. Okay. I was probably one of the few weavers that was doing hand-spun, hand-woven. Most people, when they weave use commercially spun yarns yeah okay all right and then i guess what i would in terms of we've had some experience in history and and different skills and things um i guess my next question for each of you would be kind of how you learn to you know learn to acquire these skills or the different different methods uh so I, could i ask you kind of educationally how how you go about learning from people you're working with, living with? Well, I, I have been lucky enough to have some really great mentors and teachers. Um, I've also learned some things like, you know, through trial and error, a lot of error. <laughs> um, and, you know, reading books has been helpful too, but there's also, there's a lot of uh, chaff to sort out when it comes to written material these days, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially on the internet, but also in published books. Um, a lot of times people will do something for like a year or two and then write a book about it and it gets picked up by some or other publisher and nobody realizes that this person actually hasn't been doing this very long. <laughs> you know, and they don't make a point of explaining that oftentimes in the book. Yeah. Um, so... So yeah, while books are helpful, it, it really takes a kind of, I think it takes a critical eye to, you know, if, if you just read something in a book and then put all your eggs in one basket and expect it to turn out just like they said, well... Just like the book. Might not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, I think first, you know, learning from people who have been doing something for a long time has definitely been the most helpful way to learn for mm -hmm. me. And, and trial and error has been great too. I don't want to knock that, but yeah, yeah. I think we've all learned that way, yeah. <laughs> one way or another. Yeah. Oh, the don't do it that way. I tried that. That doesn't work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, there was something 
an event that was coming up that you wanted to mention in terms of being able to learn some different skills around homesteading, self-sufficiency, mm-hmm. and all that. So, um, Rose, yeah. you want to speak a little bit there? For okay, um, I'm on the rabble f- or or the organizing crew for um, Farm and Homestead Day, and that's going to be at Mafka on June 22nd, and I'm teaching basket weaving using um, multi-flora rose or red osier, and I'm teaching how to make a real simple weighted loom like they used to use in Sweden there, and there's tons of other things that are being taught. You you just look on this this whole page of a list of things, and size is going to be all day scything, right? Well, not not scything all day. And I'll just Scythe. this may seem like a, a nitpicky thing for a uh, English major, but I I really prefer to re- use the word mowing. Okay. Let's like take that back from meaning doing something with a machine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, there will be mowing in the morning, and then you know doing quote unquote hay in a day type um, hay handling. Okay. Well, we do Thank have. We have someone that called in. Sounds like we have John from Unity on the line. If you'd like to go with your comment or question, John. Um, first, just in, in uh, reference to what Cy just mentioned, um, yes, thank you very much. You need to turn your radio down, please. Rose, um, I believe you have a... Hey, John, uh, John, can if you have your radio on, could you turn your radio down? We're getting some feedback off. through the line. Oh, we're probably getting a buzz off my uh, telephone line. That's what happens when you bury your own telephone line in <laughs> homesteading. Yeah. Um, Rose, I, if I remember right, you have a, a very interesting alternative form of transportation that, that I would like to hear more about your experience with, and I'll bet the listeners would too. And I'll just hang up so the buzz is gone. Okay. Thank you, John. Um. Transportation. Transportation. Um, I chose to stop having a car, and I have um, replaced it with a a recumbent tricycle with an electric assist, and I charge the battery off of my solar panel system. Okay. And that's why when I contacted you, I made some comment about three hours of biking to get here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. So that's um, so. There's some type of battery pack assist, right? So as a, it, I chose this time to not get a bicycle, as I had when I came here from from Michigan on my bicycle from May to Maine. Okay. And I really consciously wanted something that I could age with, so I went with the fat tire trike with a big fat seat to sit in comfortably, as mm-hmm. you know, your lower back and hips. Um, as you age, do not enjoy the small bicycle seat. So I have yeah. a seat that's about like this chair, except for with no legs on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it works. And it works great for you. It works great, and it makes lots of conversations every time you go into town. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, will there be, since we were talking about the Farm and Homestead Day, is there are there any... Uh, transportation or bicycling events that are occurring there? Um, follow up with John's phone call? No, not this year. Okay. There was someone that wanted to um, 
do something with a, a, a trailer for, uh, for biking, but okay, that didn't didn't come together for this this, this time around. We're hoping next year. Okay. Um, so I want to just jump back to you before uh, we kind of broke to take the call, but you had mentioned the mowing. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'd maybe just give you a little bit of space to talk more about about the mowing. Um, and you did mention using a scythe in the mm-hmm. past for harvesting things for your animals. Um, what do you find appealing about mowing with a scythe? Hmm. Where to start? Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, when you have a scythe that fits you well um, and is well peened and honed and um, you understand how it cuts, it's really easy, actually. It doesn't, it's, you know, there's this impression that mowing with a scythe is really hard work. Uh, it really doesn't have to be. Um, I think a little bit of that stems from many people are more familiar with the American scythe, which, you know, people did a lot of work with in the past. It's also a much heavier tool than the, like, continental European-style scythes, um, which is what my experience is with. I mean, I've used... There's somebody in near you, actually, in Bar Harbor, who's kind of like the local expert on American scythes. This mm-hmm. fellow named Benjamin Bouchard, and he has Baryonyx Knife Company, anybody wants to look him up if they want to learn about American sides. Um, but, yeah, as far as the... So, clearly they work, and Benjamin will tell you all about it. He he prefers the American sides. You know, I'd any day take a continental European-style side instead. Mm-hmm. Um, much lighter weight tool, and it's... You peen it instead of grinding it to make the bevel. Mm-hmm. Um and, yeah, so it's it's not the hard work that people think it is. It can actually be really, I mean, this sounds cliche, and I'm kind of cringing as I'm saying this, but it's sort of like meditative <laughs> activity. You know, everything's meditative now, though. Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, it, I mean, I have a real appreciation for sickle bar mowers, too. Don't get me wrong, um, mm-hmm. because when you make hay with a scythe, end up spending a lot of time spreading out what you've mown because the scythe collects it into a windrow. Great if you're then going to scoop it up and bring it right to some animals, but depending upon the density of what you're mowing, you can end up spending a lot of time spreading it back out. Yeah. Um, and it's also if you've got tangly vines growing through it, you know, it's nice when you're then taking those forkfuls, you know, onto your wagon to have the vines holding it together, but it's not so nice when you're trying to spread it out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the uh, for all that I, I love sickle bars, I don't know that I could, you know, I, I know how to sharpen the, the teeth on, the, like the mower knife, and I could kind of fiddle with it a little bit if it's not working, but I don't have the, you know, if, if parts break, I need to buy them from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't have, like, I could never be, you know, even community scale self-sufficient with sickle bar mower, um, whereas scythe is a tool that, you know, I have, I could like, with what I have, I could outfit a whole community in scythes and make sure, like, for generations, mm-hmm. you know, and maintain everything without needing to buy anything more. Yeah. Um, so that's really appealing to me, too. 
um, and the ability also to get into areas that you couldn't, like even with, you know, horses are so much lighter than a tractor, but still you're not, you don't want to go out on the fields when they're like, a lot of people run into this issue of they end up taking their first cut really late because they can't get on the fields when the soil's still wet. Yeah. And then first cut kind of, you know, people have come to think of first cut as like bad hay when actually, no, it's just cut too late most of the time. If it's cut at the appropriate time, that's the best stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I ask my goats, they'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> the animals will let you know. Yeah. Um, and maybe just to clarify for some of the listeners, when you talk about the American style and more continental style, yeah, that is, there's a different shape to the snath if i'm saying it right and and the blade as well yeah the um well the american style is also you could call it like anglo-american maybe because it was also the english style but those the blades are very different as well they're um they're a lot heavier much like a lot more steel there Mm -hmm. and whereas the continental blades are are there's a lot less steel they rely on tensioning from um hammer blows all along the body of the blade that, you know, keep them stiff, whereas they would otherwise just be so thin they'd be kind of floppy. And you can, sometimes people damage a blade and it actually loses its tension and becomes floppy in sections. That would never be a problem with an American side because it's just... more steel. Yeah, a lot more steel there. Okay. But yes, and as you said, the the snaths are different. I mean, by the time it was the American side, it was like a standardized thing mm-hmm. that you know steam bent snaths made the same more or less yep. by you know some different i shouldn't I, they I have mean, that kind yeah. of bend angle to them right right and the um there were also many different styles of you know snaths for the continental european sides you know straight ones bent ones um the ones that i make are you know i, I make them from saplings and branches of larger trees you know usually stuff that i'm either branches from trees that i'm cutting anyways for firewood or maybe i'm thinning saplings or pruning things to feed the goats and i'm always collecting you know grips and snath blanks and um i'm actually kind of trying to launch a business you know which is, you know, I'm buying the metal components but then making the wooden components of these mm-hmm. scythes to sell. It's called Wildwood Scythes, and it's trying to carry on something that was started by, um, you know, one of my most important teachers, this fellow Peter Vito, um, who passed away last year. He's, he was living in New Brunswick, Canada, with his family on their farm, and he, he originally came from Slovakia, um, so I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for what I was able to learn from him and trying to, you know, keep it going in some way. Yeah. Is there a certain type of wood that you're looking for, a certain species? Um, you know, I use a lot of different species. Uh, just this morning, I was trying out a species that I hadn't used before and was figuring out some reasons why it might not be the best choice. <laughs> uh, you know, I was using some brown or black ash, whichever you want to call it. And, uh, well... It was, it, yeah, when it gets wet in, you know, mowing early in the morning with all the dew out, um, it gets really soft. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, yeah, I'm not sure if I should be selling these. <laughs> uh, I haven't sold any of them yet, so it's, we're all upset. But, Still testing. Right. No, I, you know, mostly uh, white ash is really great. I think more than anything else, I use white ash and red maple. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but then also for for you know a lot all different kinds of hardwoods. Hopefully not the heaviest of them, just because it's like yeah. you know who wants to like swing a piece of hickory or ironwood back and forth all day. You don't need it to be that strong. Yeah, I actually make them out of you know quaking aspen too. I wouldn't sell somebody one made out of quaking aspen, but. You know, I use it because it's great to have a really light snath, and you just need to be a little more careful with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can you can work with almost anything. You know, probably willow is something that's not worth even bothering. Maybe with. too soft. Yeah. yeah. Make a basket with it. Yeah. Make a basket. Yeah. yeah. You bring it to Rose, and she'll right. make a basket for you. Yeah. <laughs> so you're able to maybe change the blade from snath to snath. Is that or have multiple? Yeah, I mean, I usually I try to fit. You know, a particular snath is meant to fit a particular person and a particular blade. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some, you know, I can switch blades if their tang angles are close enough or I'll often add a wedge um, yeah. between the snath and the blade. And the wedge can be either to lift or lower the edge relative to the ground or the tip. You know, it can alter either one of those mm-hmm. planes. Um, and sometimes I add wedges to snaths that I've been using for a while just because I decide I want to have the blade set at a little bit different of an angle. Okay. Uh, okay. Interesting. So that's what, at this Farm and Homestead Day event, um, you'll be focusing on that day? Is Yeah, I'll be, you know, kind of intermittently playing around with some hay and then also just, you know, whatever, I'll have a bunch of scythes out and, you know, my peening anvil and if people bring stuff and they want me to look at their equipment and, you know, do some repairs or give them some advice on how they could adjust it to fit better, Mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever people, whatever questions people have, but sharing the the haymaking side of it is really important to me because that's, um, you know, that's what I love to do. And, and I really, you know, people don't have the same connection with haymaking as a homesteading activity because really from an economic standpoint, I can see why most homesteaders would want to just buy their hay and do other things with their time because, you know, hay is relatively cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, when you've actually put the time into making it, it's like, wow, people are selling those bales for nothing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but it's really a lot of fun, and you can make way better. The, the hay that you can make isn't even really comparable in terms of quality. I mean, what I'm trying to put up for my animals is more comparable to, like, what you'd buy in like a little bag of like tea at the co-op, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of its leafiness and, um, you know, it hasn't been all beat to hell by tetters and over-dried because mm-hmm. loose hay can be kept at a much higher moisture level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So are you, are you doing this just throughout the, all throughout the summer, whenever? Yeah, I mean, I'm basically doing it like May through October, Mm-hmm. you know and and more in the summer but you know as long as there's stuff growing i'm if i can i want to cut something and feed it or put it up for later mm-hmm. okay yeah so feeding the animals as well as yourself along the way it seems yeah, yeah. right um well, we are getting down into just the last couple of minutes of the show um and we've been talking about Homesteading here in Maine with my guests Rose Whitehead from Waldo and Cy Schatz from Belfast and um, talked a little bit about background and experience but also about uh, different skills and skill sharing. So before we get to the 
the kind of very end of the show, I just wanted to make sure that we had information on the event that you had mentioned in terms of the the name and the date and the location. Okay, it's Farm and Homestead Day at Mafka, and it's on the same grounds as where the Common Ground Fair is. It's um, starts. When do you start? Um, I, well, seven seven a.m. You start. Uh, and then the work sh- the other workshops start at nine thirty and go through till four thirty. It's a free event. Come prepared to do things. Come prepared to do hands on work and wear clothes to accommodate that. Um, and a the whole list of people will be there wanting to share their passion in various skills that they have practiced. Yeah. Is okay. there a schedule up on the web? There is. If you know how to get to it. <laughs> <laughs> All you computer-savvy sure sure people know how to do this. Um, yeah, I'm certain that there is. If people are looking for more information, the full schedule should be available on the Mafka website, which is mofga.org. And that's uh, Farm and Homestead Day on June 22nd, coming up in just a couple weeks. Well, we have kind of hit the end of the show, so I'd like to thank our guests Rose and Cy for being here today, talking about homesteading here in Maine. Um, I'd like to thank Amy Brown for engineering today's show. And this has been Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. We're here the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m., right on WERU, and uh, stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. Support for WERU comes from...